in our text, Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, how much time do you spend thinking about heaven and eternal life? Not the angels, or perhaps what heaven might look like. What I mean here is the state of sinless perfection, the eternal worship and service of God, to be with Christ, as Paul says, which is far better than anything here on this earth. Do you ever think about it? Or maybe you spend an hour a day, or several times during the day, or perhaps most of the day. And however we might answer that question, it is clear that our minds are often, if not primarily, preoccupied with earthly things. Now, this is not necessarily wrong because, indeed, we do serve and worship God in all that we do here in this life. But our point is this, that as Christians, as believers, we need to reflect upon eternal life or the age to come because it is coming and, indeed, It is the most important thing of all since it is eternal and this world is passing away. Christ said that he would return with his angels to judge the living and the dead. And the life to come shall be glorious for those who are in Christ. It is indeed their eternal inheritance. And unto that end, Scripture, as you well know, contains... Many meditations. Often we might go to the book of Revelation to see in explicit detail as much as it is being given concerning our worship and service of the Lord in the heavens and on the new earth. But perhaps our text this afternoon is one of those rare occasions outside of that book where also it is revealed to us something of the heavenly glory and encourages us, therefore, to again think about it. Our sermon title this afternoon summarizes our text as heaven's wonderful display, but not of the display itself, but of Jesus' glory, of Christ our Savior. That is the focus, indeed, of our text with respect to the heavenly life. We have four points, as you'll see there on your liturgy, if you'd like to follow along. The first point is there is a change in Christ's Appearance. In verse 28, we read, first of all, that eight days after Jesus said this or said these things, which refers back, of course, to what we read earlier in verses 21 and on. Namely, our Lord has spoken to his disciples about the fact that though he is returning with his angels, also some should not taste death until they saw the kingdom of God referring to the fact that some glory would be revealed to them, which is obviously at least in part what the transfiguration is. But perhaps more importantly for the purposes of our text this afternoon, we see also that Jesus has many hard sayings there, doesn't he? Things that are hard to accept and maybe even hard to believe. That is to take up our cross to follow our Lord, to suffer with Him. Indeed, for the disciples to hear that their Lord Himself would be crucified and die and also be resurrected. And so, therefore, what we ought to view this transfiguration as is a means of encouragement 
in light of those difficult sayings in order to continue to walk with Christ, no less for us than with the disciples. We see that our Lord goes up on a mountain to pray, and he takes three of the disciples with him in accordance with the Old Testament law that all things should be or could be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. In case one might say that Peter perhaps had imagined such things, James and John would be able to corroborate this account. Our Lord goes up on the mountain as a place of solemnity and solitude, not necessarily a special place to worship God, though that is true in times past, that is in the Old Covenant. Nevertheless, they are drawn away from the world and even from their fellow disciples. And as Jesus prays, we see here from our text, it happens that this event takes place through his prayers, which is very similar to that of the record of his baptism in Luke 3, where we are also told that Jesus prayed, and then the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove, and the Father spoke. The Son, though his glory may be hidden from mortal men, most of his time on earth, is always a servant of heaven and always doing heaven's will and, as it were, is always listening to heaven's will, that is, his Father's. And we see, therefore, an important connection between prayer and glory, even as it pertains to us. We obviously know that God has given us his word in order that we might hear his will through it and do it. But he has also commanded us to pray to him. And congregation, if you want a wonderful experience, if you want a great revelation of God, as so many are proclaiming today, then pray to the Lord. Your Father in heaven hears you. Is that not a miracle itself? No less than he hears or heard his Son. For indeed, he listens to our cries through the intercession of that same son. All mystical or incredible experiences that people report to us today do not compare to the regular prayer life of the saint. It is marvelous. But indeed we see that something does or something special does happen in our text, doesn't it? Something wonderful. We read that Jesus face and the appearance of his face was altered. It was changed. Matthew tells us in his record that Jesus' face shone like the sun. Now children, especially during the winter, when the sun comes out and you go outside and you have the snow on the ground, it is very bright, isn't it? Sometimes maybe you even think you need to wear sunglasses in order to be outside. But notice what the scripture says, that his appearance or his glory was like the sun. That is, what is in the world today could only be used as a comparison to what it was really like. It was far greater than you or I can imagine. In addition, not only did his face shine, but also we read that his robe, his robe became, or his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. So white, Mark says, that nothing on earth could be that white. No launderer, he says, could make clothes that clean. So there he appeared. 
Now, the other Gospels record to us that this is a transfiguration or a transformation. But we note that Luke omits this description or this term in his explanation. There's a very specific reason for that. You may know that Luke wrote his Gospel to Theophilus, who himself was a Gentile. And the Gentiles, the Romans and the Greeks, the pagans of this day and age, had many stories about their gods coming to earth. And you see, when these gods came to earth, they often appeared in the form of a man or of an animal. But at times, whether unwittingly or purposely, they would reveal something of their glory to mankind. Theophilus would have read this story perhaps very similarly to that of the the Greek and Roman pagan myths. But we see here, of course, that this is nothing of the kind. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is fully human. He did not somehow appear to be human. But here, His physical appearance is transformed to reveal to us and to the disciples who He really is. That is... When we read this description, we are not reminded of some great myth or story that might convince us of some other purpose. But rather, we see the same thing in Revelation chapter 1, which confirms to us the purpose of why this is taking place, or at least one of the purposes. When you read the book of Revelation, particularly the chapter, the first chapter, you will see there a description of the Son of Man that is very similar to that which we see described here. The difference is, however, in Revelation 1, John sees Christ in his post-ascension glory, having now sat down at the right hand of the Father. He rules his church through his word and his spirit. Our point is, is what the disciples saw is a very small sliver, we might say, of the glory that Jesus Christ always had, but obscured for most of the time on earth. We see here in an image, in a picture, Paul's explanation in Philippians chapter 2, that the Son did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation, taking upon the form of a servant. So the disciples, in order that they might know that this is the divine Son of God, begin to see that glory as the Father has purposed them to see it. But perhaps more important than this, with reference to the work that Christ has come to do, we must again remember the context. The context is the cross, and the context is suffering. And the disciples, as we know from Matthew's record, particularly Peter, questioned whether this was really the purpose of our Lord. And certainly, the words that they heard concerning themselves, that all who desire to follow Christ themselves would have to take up a cross, would be a great discouragement to them as much as it is to us, because it requires a sacrifice on our part. Calvin specifically notes that this revelation of Christ's person in the transfiguration shows that his death was not voluntary. Could anyone come to the conclusion after seeing this greatness, this glorious revelation of Christ, come to the conclusion that somehow this death that Christ was about to partake of was foisted upon him unwillingly? 
Rather, it was all about the fact that he came to do this in obedience. In obedience. And therefore, we might say, sets the example for us as well to suffer alongside of him. Our Lord did so for your sake and for mine. He was not compelled. He was not forced. He did it out of love. He did it out of mercy. But secondly, congregation, we also see that something else is going on besides this transfiguration or this alteration in our Lord's appearance. We also see his conversation or read his conversation with Israel's heroes. Two men have appeared. They are Moses and they are Elijah. Now the scripture tells us who they were. But how did the disciples know who these men were? We know, of course, it's absurd to ask the question that they had pictures any more than it is absurd than trying to picture Christ because it simply cannot be done. We don't know what he looked like. Obviously, God revealed it to them as much as he does, therefore, to us that they knew it was Moses and Elijah, which proves, by the way, that this is not a fable or a story cooked up by the disciples. In other words, when something like this happens, some great and glorious revelation, there must be an interpretation. God does not give us things in order for us to figure out on our own. We must be told. This itself is a condescension on the part of God. This is important in light of many things that occur today in the church where people, in fact, have apparently visions of heavenly glory and write books about it and tell other people about what they have seen. Does it conform with Scripture, we are told, to test all things? Does it conform with the image that we have here? Have they been told precisely what it means, or are they making it up? That's an important question. After all, we might even ask of the text itself, why Moses and Elijah? Why these two men and not some others? Oh, surely they are central figures of the Old Covenant. We know that. But let's say, why not David or Abraham? What is so important? And therefore, it drives us to answer the question. And by answering the question, we see the importance and meaning of the transfiguration. Now, we might say there are similarities between Moses and Elijah, as well as our Lord. Specifically with relation to mountaintop experiences, as we might call them. You will remember that Moses had the Ten Commandments delivered to him on the mountain. And when he came down, his face shone so brightly that the Israelites could not even look upon him because he was in the presence of God. Elijah himself had an experience with the Lord on Mount Carmel with the people as fire consumed the sacrifice that he'd been told to place there. And even as he fled later on from Jezebel in her murderous rage, God appeared or at least spoke to him upon that mountain in a still, small voice. Those things are helpful. and They show us a little bit about the connection between the work of our Lord and those prophets who have come before. But the best explanation of why these two men are here as opposed to any others, is that they both represent 
two portions of God's word, the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. In other words, what we are being told here is that the Old Testament revelation, its entirety, seeks the coming Christ. It all finds its fulfillment in him, for he himself has said, I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets, as a statement or phrase, is, of course, a summary statement of the Old Testament Bible. And yet, after all of those things, there's one more thing that's even more important. And that's not the men themselves. And it's not even what they represent but it's what they are speaking about. What Paul says or speaks of in Romans 3.21 concerning the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets witness or bear witness to us concerning a righteousness apart from the law. That's what they're talking about. Verse 31. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment. At Jerusalem, our Lord, as it were, was having a conversation with these glorified men about death, about destruction, about blood, about redemption, and about atonement. His departure, of course, is his death. It is the leaving of this earth, his separation of his spirit. That is, his human spirit from, or his human soul from his body. His death is what they're focusing on because it is the means of salvation for his people. For those who repent of their sins and believe in Christ, Elijah and Moses recognize that this is the Messiah, which all of their work foreshadowed. It's remarkable, isn't it? In the midst of a glorious revelation that these faithful men of the past can only speak of one thing, not their past triumphs and their glorious leadership, which has brought Israel to this point, but the Savior, their Savior congregation, even though they are without sin in heaven. The Savior who it is said in the book of Revelation was slain before the foundation of the world, not because it didn't happen in history, but because the Father looks upon His elect in every age as those who had died in Christ even before He had come. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. Heaven is eternal life to be sure. But more it is worship to recognize what Christ has done. J.C. Ryle notes, There has never been but one foundation of hope and peace for sinners, the death of an almighty mediator between God and man. If we start splitting up the scriptures into different messages, we've entirely missed the point of why these men appeared here now. Let those who therefore speak of revelations of heaven And mystical experiences tell us the gospel as well, because if they do not, then we can be sure that they have experienced no such thing. We need to hear of Christ and Him crucified. That is the conversation that Christ had with Israel's heroes. But a congregation, 
God condescends even further. Not only does he send witnesses to the work of Christ, but he himself, we see in our third point, approves by word of the Son's work. Verse 34, we read that while Peter was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my Son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Cloud does two things, doesn't it? In a sense, it lightens because of its color, but it also obscures. Indeed, this is very similar to what we see in the Old Testament. The cloud led Israel in the desert during the day, didn't it, children? But also the clouds covered Mount Sinai where God's presence was. And also a cloud came upon the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament. These are what we call theophanies, a means or or manner in which God reveals himself, but also obscures himself, not showing his full glory. What is important here, however, is that God condescends to man, not only in this wonderful display of Jesus' glory, but by confirming what the disciples are seeing with his own voice or words. This is my chosen son. Or the other gospels say, this is my beloved son. Now it's important here to recognize this is being repeated from the baptism of Christ, but there's a difference. At the baptism of Christ, the voice of the father said this, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And now he says, this is my beloved son. In other words, when God the Father spoke at the baptism of Christ, it was a confirmation of our Lord's ministry and the approval of the Father so that he might do all things for his glory. But here, the Father is speaking to the disciples. No, he says, that this is my son. Know that this is my son. And with this, we must see in connection two things. The first of all is that remember again what Jesus had just finished speaking of. Not his own thoughts about suffering, death, and resurrection. He was relating to his disciples the plan of heaven itself. And so the father now confirms those words. Yes, this is my son. And what ought the disciples to do, therefore, in response, but to hear him? Now, this is a clear allusion to what we read in Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. There God promises, through Moses' words, to raise up a prophet like him, Moses. And God says there he would put his words in his mouth, and that prophet would speak all that the Father commands him. And therefore, those who do not hear him do not believe what he says, will indeed be judged. You see, it is a matter of faith. It is the matter of reflection upon this truth. The Father is saying, hear him, listen to him. He is no other than my beloved Son. And secondly, we also ought to see in connection with these words that they are also a response to Peter's own thoughts, which we'll get to in a minute in our fourth point. But notice this. 
When Peter sees, or when Peter and his fellow disciples, when John and James as well wake up, they see the glory of Christ and the two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving Jesus, verse 33, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter wants Christ to stay. But there is, in a sense, even if he does not intend it, that his words seem to make the Son of God equal to those who appear with him. They all will abide in their tabernacles. Peter has perhaps forgotten that Jesus Christ is not just another prophet. He's not just another great leader, but he is the Son of God, the divine Son of God. Moses had the Lord speak to him, and so did Elijah. But Christ speaks for the Father not merely because he represents his interests on earth, but because he shares in his eternal glory. The Son has forever proceeded from the bosom of the Father. He has always been with God, and therefore, as John says, he was God. The world says and thinks many things about Christ, but we ought to know, congregation, that he has the approval of God, his Father. And so therefore, and only therefore, can we know that God, not only as creator, but also as our Savior. This then is for the strengthening of our faith. And yet despite all these things, some confusion remains with the disciples. As we see in our fourth point, the disciples attempt to understand The first thing we ought to note is while these things begin or are occurring, the disciples are asleep. Now we must be very careful here. Surely they are not rebuked by Jesus for doing so. And they were just men like us. They grew tired and certainly climbing the mountain of whatever size would perhaps uh, give them reason for sleep. But at the same time, It also shows us the weakness and frailty of man. Heaven, as it were, is opening its doors. This doesn't happen every day. And they're asleep. They're not seeing what's going on. Why wouldn't they awake? Imagine for a moment, you were to fall asleep during a worship service right now, and you were to awake and a glorious light was perhaps streaming in from one of the windows. And everyone was looking at it. Would you not be disappointed that you had missed it and wondered why you yourself couldn't stay awake or at least hadn't awoken at the right time? Again, this is God's revelation to man. God condescends to his weakness. But perhaps more important than this, we see Peter's response, which is perhaps one of the greatest understatements ever made. Having seen this glorious vision of Christ and the two men that stood with him, he says, it is good for us to be here. It is good for us to be here. It is acceptable. It is fine. Where's the worship? Where's the glorification? Did he not hear what they were saying about why Christ had come? 
He says, it's good. I approve of it, as it were. So let's make three tabernacles or shelters, tents. We see, in a sense, the very self-centeredness of Peter in these words. Now, you might think to yourself, well, wasn't he glorifying? Wasn't he praising the Son, even if he, he perhaps misunderstood a bit of it? But why would he want them to stay? He says, let us stay here, all of us. Let us not leave this mountain is the implication. I don't want to go back to that earth full of sinners, full of impurity. And more importantly than that, the warning, the statement that I'm going to have to suffer with Christ any less than I want Christ himself to suffer. Jesus promised that if they were to truly follow him, they would have to take up their cross daily and suffer for his sake. And ask yourself this question before we're too quick to judge Peter, even though in a certain sense we must. Would you want to leave? Would you want to go back to pain and difficulty and trial and temptation? If you had a foretaste of heaven like this, wouldn't you also want to stay there too? Undoubtedly you would. But Christ has called us to follow. This is the Christian life by definition is difficulty before triumph. It is simply following our Lord is doing what he has done. Of course, not making atonement through our good works. But our good works are in our faith, more importantly, standing as a witness that we are truly following him at all. Here's the attempt to understand. Let's stay here. But we can't. You see, when Jesus, in his transfiguration, had completed this time this great and glorious revelation, became, as it were, again a normal man. And they left that mountain and did go back to their ministry. But Peter and the disciples, we read here in our text in verse 36, they just didn't say anything about it. They told no one at that time what they had seen. Now what is important here? for the sake of our instruction, is if we look at the other gospel accounts, we see that our Lord has instructed them not to tell anyone until after his resurrection. And for the purposes of our encouragement and instruction, we can turn for a moment to 2 Peter chapter 1 and read precisely the account as Peter himself is led by the Spirit of God to speak. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, there is no longer an attempt to understand or to communicate. Now Peter is bold. He's being led by God to say this. We did not follow cleverly invented stories like pagan myths when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it. We came face to face with the glory of Christ. We know, as it were, that he was not just a man. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, 
whom I love with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Now here's the application for you and I. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day, day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see the point here. We don't have these revelations. We don't see Christ in this glory, personally. But we have the word of God. Peter says that's sufficient. And so when we want to hear the voice of our shepherd, as we have been instructed by God the Father himself to hear him, we go to his word, we meditate upon it, and we delight in it. Because in a sense, just like prayer, when we open this book, heaven itself is open to us. The Father is speaking to me. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And you are my beloved sons, because you believe in Him. And so the antidote to the perplexity of the disciples and all the confusion and questions we might have concerning the event of the transfiguration is very simple. It's in the form of a question. Do I hear Christ? Do I listen to him? Do I believe him in his word? Amen.